0: Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code MAYFLOWERS, one word, to receive your discount. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code MAYFLOWERS. Thank you for your support.
1: Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation, as well as Senior Correspondent at Yahoo News. Um, Apologies for the hiatus. I uh, was in Ukraine for a week uh, reporting, interviewing uh, the Defense Minister Alexei Reznikov, as well as the head of their military intelligence service, Kirill Budanov, um, a story that we should post imminently at Yahoo News. Uh, but this week, I am joined by my friend, Mark Polymeropoulos. He's a former veteran officer and highly decorated one at that, at the CIA. He was the uh, chief of, or the head of uh, European... What is it, Mark? The European... European Eurasia.
2: Eurasia. No one can get that right. It's just a lot of countries. Exactly.
1: Eurasia always reminds me of, like, fascist Russian philosophers. But anyway, we'll want we'll hold that against the agency. But anyway, I, I invited Mark on because... Um, We like to pick each other's brains offline about what's happening in Ukraine and more to the point how the Western press and Western policy community, uh, including various think tankers and pundits, um, seem to be quite pessimistic about Ukraine's chances of pulling off a stunningly successful counteroffensive, which will get underway imminently. Um, We don't know exactly where, although if I'm inclined to... Make a proposition or, or place my bets. I would look more south than east at the moment, including, frankly, Crimea, based on what I w- was hearing in Kiev for a week. But anyway, Mark, uh, it's great to have you back. Um, we've talked at length about Ukraine on this show, and you're a contributor to MSNBC. And I think you know one of our our mutual or joint frustrations is every time Ukraine. Defies the odds and upends the conventional wisdom or the received wisdom about what they can do and versus what is expected the Russians will be able to do. We keep, kind of re- re- resort or, or revert back to this kind of previous. Mentality that oh no no okay that's very impressive the Ukrainians have pulled off a stunning upset in Kyiv and Kharkiv and Herson but in terms of what they can do going forward forget it you know this is going to be a stalemate war of attrition there's going to have to be some diplomatic solution the Biden administration will have to turn off the spigot of of security assistance and we're all going to have to like pack it up and go home here that's not the impression I got after spending a week in the region and talking to senior and mid-ranking. Ukrainian military and political officials. And I want to get your perspective on this as a, you know, a veteran intelligence officer who, you know, understands how the sausage gets made and also how, frankly, a lot of this stuff that percolates and winds its way into the American information ecosystem is is deeply politicized, right? You've got National Security Council people who, frankly, never wanted this conflict to begin with. They saw it as a distraction from bigger fish to fry, such as the perennial pivot to Asia and confronting China and all the rest of it to those who simply just don't really have a good handle on what's happening in the country. What, what is your overall assessment of the war sure. as it's now?
2: Well, there, there's so much to address here. But, you know, first and, and foremost, I am, as you said, you know, deeply frustrated um, by the American media's coverage of this because I think ultimately it's lazy. Because what reporters and journalists are doing in the national security sphere, your colleagues and my pseudo colleagues who are now mad at me all the time because I say things like this, is they just their sources are in the U.S. administration. So they're getting things one sided. What you do differently and why I always sit, you know, it's not because I like you, but it's because I I respect what you're doing is. And I've tweeted this out a hundred times is, you know, if you want to know what's going on in Ukraine, why don't you talk to someone who what has been to Ukraine? Who spends time in Ukraine? Who goes and meets with who? The head of military intelligence and the defense minister. I mean, for F's sake, I don't know, can I say this on this program? Um, but you know, but, but ultimately, uh, I think that the American media is just giving us a one-sided view based on this kind of perpetual hand-wringing um, and navel-gazing that occurs in the, in the U.S. national security establishment of people who've never gotten their hands dirty, who don't know anything about unconventional warfare, um, and who pontificate in their in their you know in their armchairs uh, on Sunday afternoons. Meanwhile, when you go out there and your colleague Jimmy and you're out there, you're actually talking to Ukrainians, you're meeting with Ukrainians, or reporting from the front from all levels of the Ukrainian government. You get a different picture. And so I'm not saying that they're wrong and uh, uh, all the time, or that you're right all the time. But boy, you got to have kind of a mix. You, you got to put all these things together. And so, um, you know, to me, what's you know what what is what is critical, and you know what I think. Uh, uh, is is just a, a a total lesson in the failure of the U.S. national security media is what's happening in Bakhmut, where all, all the U.S. journalists were doing is when they're talking to their sources in the in Department of Defense, whose analysis has been totally wrong, uh, when they talked directly to Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, who, you know, I'm sorry to say, not a bad thing that he is, he is uh, 10 years up soon because he can't seem to stop you know, going off and freelancing and talking about how, it, how the, Ukraine, the, the war is unwinnable. Um, but with Bakhmut, everyone was saying this was a, a pretty um, desperate attempt by the Ukrainians, that it was, you know, that that it made no sense, uh, strategically unimportant. Yet, meanwhile, what the Ukrainians have been, managed to do is bleed the Russians um, in a staggering, uh, uh, you know, almost unprecedented, you know, military operation, Which, which frankly, you and just a couple others predicted was the correct course of action now is that because you're smart well it is but it's also because who do you talk to the ukrainians so instead of talking to americans uh, and american officials talk to ukrainians they have a strategy this is their war to win one of the things that i find incredible and this the, the, you know the reason why i have a different view of things is i was an operations officer i wasn't an analyst so if i'm not sitting here retired now i'm you know in ukraine sitting with my ukrainian partners that means i listen to them that means it's the it's the view from the field. And guess what? They're the ones fighting and dying and they have a vote. Um, and so ultimately, I think that, uh, you know, Bakhmut is a perfect example of uh, uh, of you know, our inability to, to from the United States have kind of uh, proper coverage. And it's going go to go. And, you know, one of the things you, you mentioned, MSNBC, well, finally, on Morning Joe today, there was a discussion. And Eugene Robinson, who is, of course, an outstanding journalist, said, hey, I think I think we were all collectively wrong in Bakhmut. I think the U- Ukrainians were right. And I I was watching, you know, with my coffee cup and, you know, threw it in the air. And I said, finally, someone said what I've been howling about all the time. And so, you know, I think that's I just have a different view on, uh, on the conflict, probably from my time as someone in the field, uh, understanding that our indigenous, our, you know, our, our partners on the ground, indigenous partners, whatever you want to call them. They're the ones fighting and dying. They get a vote. Listen to them, please, for God's sakes.
1: Well, and, and, you know, just to to put a little more nuance in this, right, so there is a debate about Bakhmut happening inside Ukraine, right? There are a lot of people, including special forces operators, mid-level commanders who think... This is folly. They, they don't understand why the Ukrainians have expended so much blood and treasure in a city that everyone agrees is is strategically not all that significant, although symbolically it's a major prize for the Russians. Right. The Russians have poured everything they can. They set this, this fake deadline of May 9th or May 10th to capture all of Bakhmut. Um, but, you know, what I got from Reznikov and Budanov especially, Budanov was was instrumental. I, I know you have to be careful about talking about the the, the Pentagon or the so-called discord leaks. But, you know, according to this leaked intelligence from the U.S. side, Budanov took a decision around January, February. He described the situation in, in Bakhmut as catastrophic, quote unquote, and he dispatched the Kraken unit, which is one of the elite teams of commandos. And he himself is a former Spetsnaz commando, highly decorated one, to uh help secure the defensive positions and to cut off the threat of Russian encirclement of the city. So instead, the Russians have been pressing in through the urban terrain, like through the heart of the city, street by street, apartment block by apartment block. Right. But what happens? Right. And and it's always a seismic moment in the American media consciousness. Uh, Kirby comes out, National Security Council spokesman and says, we assess, meaning the U.S. intelligence community assesses, the Russians have lost a total or they've suffered 100,000 casualties since December. Right. Uh, you know, an order of magnitude not seen since the, the you know, the, the fight in the Pacific in World War II. And of the 100,000 casualties. Half have been Wagner fighters, which, according to the Ukrainians, is the only capable fit fighting vanguard that the Russians have got. Budanov is absolutely withering about VDV. Naval, naval infantrymen, he says, Wagner, that's the only, that's the only game in town. These guys are good. they they fight hard and they fight bravely, right? This is a catastrophic loss for the Russian side, right? Now, and that's not to diminish what the Ukrainians have lost, we don't really have the adequate numbers, at least, uh, you know, up to date numbers, but the strategy has always been, there's one place, there's one flashpoint along the contact line, that is Bakhmut, right? If we don't hold the line there, if we don't bleed the Rus- the Russians dry, white there, they are going to be that much more prepared for their defenses when we mount our own counteroffensive which is going to happen imminently right and yeah i mean a lot of people and look i i wasn't i mean you give me a little too much credit i i was not i didn't make up my mind on this all i knew was that hang on a minute there's a once again as as i noticed when i went in january of 2022 a huge disconnect between the Ukrainian estimation of Russia's capability and their willingness to do X, Y, and Z versus what the Americans are saying, the same kind of, of, of atmospherics persisted today. And I wanted to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, look, I, I, we don't know, and it's going to be hard to, to demonstrate to our satisfaction, right? Did the Ukrainians suffer too many losses in Bakhmut? Is that going to hobble their counteroffensive capability? Well, well who knows? If their counteroffensive is wildly spectacularly successful, uh, everyone will say, oh, it was the right strategy. If it's a failure... Well, that doesn't necessarily make it the wrong strategy. There could be other mitigating factors into why it's a failure. But as of today, all of a sudden, you're beginning to see this kind of sea change in opinion in, in the American commentariat that, well, uh, maybe maybe we got it wrong and the Ukrainians got it right yet again. You know, well, one,
2: one of the things about the discord leaks, I will say, is that you know, anytime there's some kind of intelligence breach like that, you're seeing just a snapshot a moment in time. And so this was several months ago. And so, you know, and and, and the situation has changed and, and, think you know, everything is intelligence is dynamic. So, you know, that, that is so, what, you know, my my view of the some of those leaks um, was that it was not as significant. And, you know, look, we might have we might lose some signals, intelligence streams. That's very serious. Um, but in terms of the, you know, the, the actual following the war, it's, it's irrelevant. It was it was just it was old. Um, uh, and so, you know, it, it, in that sense, it doesn't it doesn't matter as much. But when it, you know, it's, it's almost that we, that we can't seem to learn our lesson. We have overestimated the Russians, underestimated the Ukrainians, and we can't seem to break that. It's very strange to me. What, what started, and, and, you know, I've talked about this with you quite often. And what, one of the things I'm proud of is, look, I haven't been in government for several years, but, um, between 17 and 19, when I was kind of in charge of this area, uh, uh, you know and when the, like the rest of the, the the planet is still focused on Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, we were doing a lot of stuff in terms of building capability in Ukraine and that's uh, special operations forces and in the intelligence community and what I call it putting in the plumbing. Um, and so does that that means everything from training, maybe a little bit of resources, but the, the biggest thing was just building relationships and trust. And so on February 24th last year, you know, Zelensky didn't say or, or you know, or, or the Ukrainian intelligence services didn't say, hey, what's the phone number in, in Langley? What's the 703 number? They say, actually, let's go down, you know, go down to our to, to the to our brothers and sisters who've been here for years working with us, who we know exceedingly well. Uh, and and you take it from there. So, you know, the, the, the plumbing was in place. And one of the things that that both the United States special operations and intelligence community, along with the Ukrainians, you know, they were in one sense lucky. This is a giant lab experiment on Russia and the Russian military, particularly on things such as electronic warfare. And so, so many of the, you know, uh, of the successes, I think someday people, someone will write this book and story. And so, you know, certainly it won't be me, but, um, but, but a lot of the successes are because of this, you know, this close cooperative effort and it's, you know, United States doesn't get credit for this. Ukrainians get credit. We, we were there to advise and insist and train and learn with them. Um, but they're far more capable than we give them credit for time and time again. And again, we seem to, uh, to uh, overestimate Russian capability. It's, it's, it, I, I mean, I find it amazing. We can't help ourselves. And it happens over and over and over again. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I'm more kind of bullish. Uh, is that the right thing? Bullish on, on, on Ukrainians uh, uh, on, on the offensive. Um, you know, if I was in the National Security Council, I would be, you know, you, you, know, you go through a lot of scenario planning. Um, you know, your job is to, of course, you know, help prepare the president to make tough decisions. You better prepare for a catastrophic Russian collapse. That is a possibility. No one talks about it, but I think that is absolutely possible that the entire Russian front could, you know, can collapse. Um, uh, 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 and so, you know, that's something that I think that U.S. policymakers should be just as, uh, you know, concerned or, or prepared for as a long stalemate. Um, uh, but no one seems to talk about that because you we know, overestimate the Russians time and again.
1: Right. But that, but that's, you know, so one of the things I, I got almost universally from my trip is um, a great deal of optimism from the Ukrainian side that security assistance, diplomatic support, moral support for this fight is uh, categorical. Right. They, they, they don't see any diminution in Western resolve to help them not only defend their territory, but then recapture more. Right. Reznikov in particular was very worried at the beginning that there was going to be so-called war fatigue and he now doesn't I mean you know this is a guy who goes to the Rammstein meetings every month or whatever they are and comes back and seems very satisfied very sunny in fact and I was surprised by this because I see something a little bit different which is whether it's Emmanuel Macron you know sort of floating these idiotic east schemes in China of all places or you know the Germans being the Germans and saying you know we gave you tanks the shops close now go away make this whole thing disappear or the Pope or whatever. Um, another big concern I have, and I, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, the, the one place in the world I have the least amount of access is my own country. Right. Um, so I don't know to what extent this is true or false, but what does concern me is I do think there are elements at the national security council level and beyond that don't really want Ukraine to win Uh, They don't want Russia to win, but they also don't want to give Ukraine the tools with which to completely strategically defeat the Russians for the very reason you said. They're terrified of a catastrophic collapse of the Russian military and then what kind of uh, reverberations and repercussions that would have in Moscow, right, including, you know, could somebody decide to launch tactical nukes or non or strategic weapons or what would it mean if there's some kind of palace coup already you're seeing now Yevgeny Prigozhin the founder and financier of Wagner going on this lunatic tear three is or fire four raids.
2: I love it there is there's, there's, uh, lack yeah.
1: of ammunition and he, like I said you know Wagner is the vanguard fighting force particularly in Bakhmut says that we we haven't been given ammunition he's castigating the uh, chief of the general staff Valery Garasimov. he's castigating the defense minister Sergei Shoigu um and whether this is just theatrics or you know there's a legitimate Faction fight taking place in the Kremlin and Prigozhin is angling for a high position. I don't know. But yeah, I think people are still terrified of Almighty Russia. No what doubt. will happen if, if we cannot predict the next sequence of events? Even though, frankly, very few people predicted uh, or could have told you that the Soviet Union was going to collapse when it did, right? So we have to be prepared for the unexpected when it comes to this country. I mean, so much of it is just a black box. We don't have. Insight and clarity. We, we we were very good at understanding that there was going to be a war and almost the exact date at which it was going to start. But when it comes to sort of the inner workings, I think things are still very obscure and 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 that that leads to paranoia and fear at the policy. No, you're right.
2: Yeah, no. So I think that you know the, your assessment of the National Security Council is correct. There's certainly elements in there that that um, you, know, pr- you know certainly or have that that notion that you know Putin is the devil. We know you know and and really fear, but. Uh, you know, I, I what what again, what I find amazing and, and this this I, I think these people are, are not they're no one with any real world experience. They've never had a bomb drop on their head. They've never looked at a mass grave. They've never seen a, an apartment building destroyed or, or gone to, uh, you know, and see, you know, slaughtered women and children on the street. Sorry. I mean, but th- that's true. And so, you know, the idea of keeping Putin in power just because, you know, it's it's, you know, you know, for stability. I mean, I think that's crazy. And so, so we're not, you know, so so the the idea of having those kind of concerns um, of someone who's a mass murderer, or someone who's indicted as a war criminal, um, that to me is immoral. But that that you know, it, I've even heard analysis saying, well, we have to do the same thing like we did keeping Saddam in power after the first Gulf War, which was massively idiotic. Uh, uh, but but people actually go on TV and say, well, that was the right thing to do then, and it'll be the right thing to do now. And I just I, you know, I kind of shake my head because I really don't think any of these people have seen anything real in the world um uh, but going back to you know the 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 one thing that i give the administration credit for particularly uh, president biden is that you know there are there are definitely dissenting views within the nsc and it seems to come to him for final decisions and we do do the right thing you know slowly but ultimately we you know if you take a look at the famous you know the wish lists of all the armaments all the weapons that the ukrainians wanted i mean it's it's stunning if you look at it now Every
1: single
2: thing they've gotten, every single thing. They've gotten it now, but they've gotten it, but it it was with, you know, certainly with a lot of reservations within the NSC. And then ultimately, my understanding is that President Biden makes the decision to go forward. And so, you know, he's done the right thing. It's just slowly, whatever that old Churchill saying is about America seems to be seems to be true. And so um, uh, I I think that, you know, the the biggest worries that I saw for for some time um, in people who I've talked to are involved in this uh, really was commerce. Um, and I think the Ukrainians follow the domestic uh, political scene in America quite closely as well. And so when you saw, for example, Speaker McCarthy um, the other day at that press conference in Israel kind of push back against a Russian reporter about Ukraine, I think probably I, I certainly, you know, breathe a sigh of relief, probably the Ukrainians did as well, because there are worries about about some elements, uh, uh, you know, in the GOP, particularly in the House. So, you know, is there is there going to be war fatigue? You know, perhaps. I mean, I think one of the things that I that I find so, you know, you, you talked about some things that worried you. What worries me is this this notion now, and again, this has now become conventional wisdom in the US media that um uh that we're going to see how Ukraine does in the offensive before, you know, and that's gonna be a determining factor and if we kind of go forward with the same lines of support. That's insane. You know, that's putting way too much pressure on the Ukrainians. That's that doesn't mean we're, you know, we're supporting them for the long haul. I don't know if that's really the, the the feeling at the White House. But you certainly you see that in the kind of chattering classes in, in D.C. now. And all I can think of is, you know, thank God in World War II there was no social media. Um, uh, you know, and maybe these discussions, I certainly I don't know maybe you know, I got to go back and do some research. But, uh, you know, one of the things that we have a hard time doing is anything difficult. And so, you know, the idea, oh, my God, this is going to be a tough fight. What do we do? Well, you know what you do? You freaking lean into it. Um, uh, and if Ukrainians are not doing well, let's do more for them. We, we're under, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy if we don't give them what they need to win, because then they won't win. But if we do more, maybe they can win. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's it's maddening to me, um, uh, uh to kind of see this, uh, you know, go forward. But, but, you know, Ukraine is going to face some tough times. You know, this offensive is not going to be painless at all. It's going to be pretty bloody. And, um, uh, you know, this certainly wasn't, you know, the the feelings that I had when I was at at CIA and we had to do really hard things in hard places. You know, I mean, you know, there's a this is going to be a really silly analogy, but there's a famous there's a famous scene in Zero Dark Thirty, the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad, where a senior senior agency official comes and screams at everyone in the station about because we can't find bin Laden. And he basically says, you know, we're it. You know, and so, so I, I look back to those times, and there were some, you know, in, in our counterterrorism campaigns, there were some dark times where we were getting our asses kicked all over the world. Al Qaeda's sending off bombs all over Europe. Um, uh, but, you know, did we take a knee? Did we say, oh my God, you know, and, and stare at our, 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 you know, our navels? No, you, you lean into it. And so I wish we would have that same attitude. Not thinking that this is this is make or break time for the Ukrainians, and uh, and the the one thing I will say, Michael, and and I, maybe we're, I'm giving all of us or several of us too much credit, but you know there, you know it, it, if you make noise in the media about this, you know it's almost the, and I and I don't say shaming the White House, but if you kind of if you kind of bitch and whine and complain like we do all the time that they not that they're not doing enough, and you make a case, I mean people do listen. And so um, and people and, and there, there are very influential people on the Hill, both Republicans or De- uh, and Democrats, both in the Senate and the House, who really are committed to Ukraine. So there's, you know, if you you know, every once in a while, I'm like, this is I'm sure you feel this way, too. This is fruitless. I can't take these people anymore. You know, the, you know, the, with their, their kind of the analytic diarrhea. But keep see, at yeah. it. That's what I'm saying keep at it. People I do it many, many years. years.
1: I spent I I, I spent too many sort of intellectual PTSD because I spent so many years arguing for Syria, right? Yep. And you know, I mean, every little scrap and morsel. I mean, when they got the the uh, laser guided, I'm sorry, the wire guided anti tank missile, the the tow. That was like a huge thing. Right. And, and you compare that to what we've now given the Ukrainians in terms of. Right.
2: Look, let me let me say something. that's really important. So I remember and I, I'm not going to name names here. I'm going to get in trouble. But I remember a senior senior official at a meeting when I was uh, 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 on Syria when they said, you know, our goal, the policies, we're going to give them enough to get to the negotiating table. And I thought to myself, how freaking immoral is that? Because I, I wasn't I was in D.C. at the time. But my job usually is to sit next to an indigenous partner. And that indigenous partner is looking at you. And, and so I'm the, I'm the American. My family's back home. I'm going back to the team house, watching football on Armed Forces Network. But you know what? They're you know they're friends and family. Some of them are dead. Some of them getting their asses kicked somewhere. In this case, it was the Syrians, but let's even put it towards the Ukrainians. But the idea that we're going to do just enough to help them at the negotiating table was immoral then. And that same thinking sometimes permeates now. And it drives me nuts. Being from, from my role as being someone who has to look a partner in the face and and you know what you want to say is we're doing everything we can, but you know that they know that's not true, um, and especially so. So if, if you're if you're on the ground in Ukraine, if you're on the ground in Ukraine right now and sit next to a Ukrainian who's you know whose family's been killed or, or, whose, or whose relatives are in the you know in, in the in, in a you know in the subway or metro somewhere with you know Iranian drones flying overhead, and you're like you know what if we gave them you know attackums or, or better systems, whatever it is to knock out these Iranian drones, maybe their family would be. I feel a little guilty. So it pisses me off. So that's now you getting me off. You know,
1: it's, it's, it's funny you say this, because um, in January, I was in Ukraine before the war, and uh, there was a congressional delegation there. And I met with Tom Malinowski, Democratic um, congressman from New Jersey, very good guy. He used to be uh, at Human Rights Watch. And he was telling me a story of when he went as a Human Rights Watch representative to Syria. And he would meet with, you know, Syrian civilians who were being barrel bombed and their families had been murdered, their their daughters and sisters had been gang raped by Shabiha militiamen, and he would explain the U.S. policy and say, well, you know, if the regime uses chemical weapons on you, that's for us the that's red the line. Right, and, right. That's, and so one guy stood up and said, so, you know, they can kill us with mortars, grenades, bombs. machine guns, barrel bombs. They can come to our house. They can burn the house down. But the the thing for you that matters is if they're using you know sarin gas or chlorine, that, and then the guy just walked out of the room. He was so disgusted. I mean, how do you how do you you know? I mean, how do you explain this to people who have to live and suffer? And this is to your point. I feel like so much American policy making is people they've gone to Ivy League universities, they've had their IR seminars, they've gone, they become Rhodes Scholars, but they see the world as a game of risk, right? It's an abstraction to them. They're not actually engaged with people on the ground. They They've never work.
2: been dirty on the ground. I mean, I, right. I, I, mean, I mean that really seriously. And, and, you know, it's not and even, Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I, I look, I, I get it. Sometimes when you make decisions purely from a humanitarian imperative or, or a sense of moral outrage, you can commit folly. You can get you can get it wrong. You can do stupid things. You have to balance pragmatism with. A sense of decency. Right, I'm give you.
2: Okay, so so you're, you're this is this was kind of something that I thought about a lot in terms of Afghanistan. So what you're right. What you need is a mix of of kind of you know uh, you know big forehead thinkers in the N.S.C. along with you know kind of action folks who, who've gotten their hands dirty in the past. Because and, and then that's when you'll get kind of better policy. Because you're right. Because you can't just say. You know, uh, uh, you know, you can't just listen to the, the CIA, you know, station chief on the ground and ignore the academic and you can't do it vice versa. So you need a combination of both. But one of the things that, you know, uh, Mike Morrell, the former um, uh, deputy director and acting director, when we we're kind of having this big debate over the withdrawal from Afghanistan and everyone was like, well, the intelligence community got some of this stuff wrong. And Michael said something which is 100 percent true. And and it was in essence, look, I don't know about the analytic assessments that were given to the White House, but I'll tell you this. Every chief of station in Kabul, we we brought back to see the president of the United States. Every single one for twenty years, and there and, he, and then he said, "There's not a single director of operations officer that was you know my tribe who would look you in the eye and tell you if we leave Afghanistan is going to be stable, you know despite everything we put in there and our indigenous forces and I ran a paramilitary base in eastern Afghanistan at a thousand Afghan indigenous, twenty of us. They saved my. I'm not here today without them. I love these guys, but I would never say if we leave they're going to be effective. They needed us." A hundred percent, and that's the ground truth that you get from someone who's been there. Um, uh, and so, you know, it, it, again, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping some of my colleagues are, you know, flying back home and giving some sense to the N.S.C. But you never know. I'm not not in government anymore. I don't know. Yeah, and
1: I think you know, I mean, look, I, I somebody in in Ukraine said this to me off the record, and I wish I could have put it on on the record. But um, I think a lot of what's impelled American tentativeness and hesitancy with respect to Ukraine has been. Afghanistan syndrome, right? Uh, We have lost wars successively and with a deeply debilitating psychological effect on the electorate and also at very high levels of government that we're almost terrified of victory, even though in this case, this is not our victory. As you pointed out, this is a Ukrainian victory. This is their fight. And this is something that, you know, unlike in the United States where You know, we say, well, we should withdraw. Why are we doing this? This is a war of choice. It was it was it was folly. Eighty seven plus percent of Ukrainians don't even want to cede one fucking square inch of territory to the Russians. They want to press on. They want to liberate Crimea. And that's with them having suffered Shahid drones, cruise missiles, lost family members under the rubble, et cetera, et cetera. And it's a very hard thing to explain. You know, I come home and, you know, that scene. and, And look, I'm you're you're more you know, you're a kinetic operator. You've been in, in military situations as an intelligence officer. But, you know, I come home and it's sort of that scene from Hurt Locker where he's, you know, he's in the grocery store pushing a grocery cart with his kids and everything is so kind of blasé. And yeah, yeah.
2: right?
1: And he just doesn't, he, 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 he doesn't compute. You know, I come from a, a war zone where I'm talking to people with sandbags in the window, life and death struggle. They've lost their brothers. You know, there's a whole thing now in Kyiv which doesn't really resemble a war zone anymore that soldiers who come back feel like the country, the city has abandoned them. You know, like they're on the front lines. There's a psychological divide now in Ukraine. Uh, they're almost a victim of their own success in a way. And they
2: come back and it's like European cafes and, you know. and
1: Completely. The and then the but I come, I come back to America and, you know, it's the same old culture war nonsense. It's the same old debates, same old, you know, stupidity on Twitter and whatever. And you try to have to explain to people what's at stake here. This is not an abstraction. This is not something you're just watching on TV. These are real people, and their lives are affected gravely based on decisions that are made at very high levels of government. And also, as you point out, I mean, there is a – you, you can't have a majoritarian in, um, effect on policymaking by shouting from the rooftops and basically petitioning your, your lawmakers and so on. But, yeah, I don't know. I, I just I, – I'm very cynical about – you know what we're trying to do here. Uh, Millie is one thing, but I think there are other stakeholders. I mean, I've, I've said it before. I think Jake Jake Sullivan wants this to go away as quickly. As possible and under whatever terms are amenable to the ukrainians which i think he would like to be different from what they they define as amenable terms but you know i mean what is what is the price we're paying here like we could give the ukrainians f-16s tomorrow how many thousands of these these aircraft do we have right and by the way this notion that it's going to take them several years to become it's, I I'm telling you I'm, I have a u.S Air Force assessment of ukrainian mig-29 and su-27 pilots who were put in the simulator and the, the assessment was four to five months they can fly these machines
2: See, right my friend one of my buddies is an Air Force pilot uh, uh uh he told me you know one month they could be capable three months uh they'd be they'd be uh, uh really effective on the battlefield. He said, I mean, just, and but but then you had people from the, I can't remember what it was. It was a senior U.S. Uh, DOD official who testified said in front of Congress said 18 months. I mean, just, they're throwing these numbers out there. says just dog shit. And Do you so, remember,
1: like, again, coming back to the Syria debate, I forget who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs who testified before Congress that Bashar al-Assad has the most formidable air defense systems in all the Middle East. Formidable air defense systems. The Israelis, long the shit out of Syria on a weekly basis. I just, you know, I don't know where this Potemkin.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's la la land. The Israelis can, you know, had that defeated, uh, you know, every time they they, you know, they conducted airstrikes, which they've been doing for you know, fifteen plus years, and so, um, yeah. It's, I mean, you know, the, the but you know, one. I, this is I'm going to go on a tangent, just one thing, but that what I what I one of the most interesting things that I found about my new kind of weird world in, in the media is meeting folks like yourself and others, and, and I will tell you that a journalist. Um, uh, uh, is you know, and the role of, of of what you do in reporting from war zones is very similar to to a CIA case officer. Um, now everybody knows we, we CIA does not use journalists as cover, so so that you know' you're, you and your colleagues are not working for the agency. I can promise you that it's against the it's against u s law. But what is similar in this is you know you go to war zones and you you can't help but feeling some affinity for people. you you meet people, you meet sources. Um when you write a story, you need multiple sources to 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 actually go to print. You see all sorts of kind of horrific things, um, and the notion of journalists—you know—I mean—and it's, it's it's a it's a fact. I went to Walter Reed, and I I will tell you that my doctors at Walter Reed gave me a long list of journalists who have been treated for PTS and for TBI who they have treated there. Um, so it's very similar, and so you know the, you know the, uh, the but it, but that means you have to get dirty and go on the ground, um, and that certainly is what you and and others have done. But I feel like. A lot of folks don't I'm, do not it, a, don't.
1: I'm not a war zone reporter. I mean, you know, I'm not yeah. Clarissa Ward. I'm not Martin Shuloff. These are
2: people. Who I had, are I had a great, up. great discussion with Clarissa Ward on this. Just a similarity. Fantastic. Yeah, you
1: know, she's one of the best in the business, yeah. and I think yes, she's she and,
2: country, yeah. Uh You know, both of us had served, but it's I, you know, I reviewed her uh, her book. In fact, uh, uh, year or two or whenever it came out, but it's, you know, it's but it, but it's the notion if you you know if you want to get the story you got to go there. So I just don't think a lot of people in the in, in the in you know in the United States do that, and they they rely the journalists are relying on U.S. sources and the administration. Yes, and, and I think this
1: is this is sort of the big problem. It's it's you know, and you know, look, I'm I'm of a, of two minds here because on the one hand, I'm very um, uh, proud and and protective of my profession because I it's taken a real beating by some very malign intellectually disingenuous actors over the last couple of years. On the other hand, you know, there is a credible point to be made. And it was funnily enough, made best of all by uh, Ben Rhodes in that New York times magazine profile of, you know, how you create an echo chamber. You, you, you take a bunch of young people who are fancy themselves political or national security reporters, but they don't, they don't leave their confines of Adams Morgan or Williamsburg, wherever the hell they live. They don't go abroad and instead, they rely on you know gobbets of information spoon fed to them by people on the national security Council, right and you create a worldview, you create a narrative, everything is strategic communications and not sort of hard fact based you know go out and see for yourself you know the sort of like the Orwellian journalism i mean Orwellian in the positive sense, not the negative sense you know of of just going to a place and and comparing what you see with your own two eyes and you hear with your own ears versus what you read in The Daily Telegraph, right mm-hmm it's completely two different things. And, you know, I always, it it makes me wonder because I only know what I know from my own work, but then I read stories about things that I don't know. And I wonder, well, gee, how is that sausage getting made? You know, I'm sure it's, it's the same susceptibility to tunnel vision and confirmation bias and bad sourcing as everything else.
2: Well, here's, here's a great example. So, so one of the things I know we wanted to talk about is this you know the 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 drone or whatever the hell it was you know the, Yes, the, the drone, drone strike on the Kremlin it,
1: or the alleged drone
2: so you know so i was i was you know i was actually i was giving a uh, uh some lectures on national security at the naval academy the other day so when when i was called to do some tv hits on it, i couldn't do it thank god because i would have said i don't freaking know and not in this speculation is wildly unhelpful but i'll you tell can't you what you can say that on I tv i know. You just can tell you i don't know please. You'll never get called again by a booker. (laughs) You, you wouldn't, you won't. And, and my phone's been quiet and maybe, maybe that's why, because I've been tweeting that, but saying that could it be the Ukrainians? Absolutely. Could it be the Russian false flag? Absolutely. Is it, could it be some weird combination of something? Absolutely. So, and, and, but I'll tell you something that the U.S. intelligence community probably knows right now that their confidence levels are not high enough, but they know something. And, and we'll find out soon because if, if it is a, a false flag, you know, we'll put it out with these authorized disclosures. Um, If the Ukrainians did it, we're not going to want to say anything. It'll leak, though. <laughs> and so, so you know, so or if it's some Russian partisan, which is the most fascinating part of it, you know, that's, um, uh, you know, that 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 will all come out. But you know, you 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 know, people were arguing on social media, you know, and absolutely saying this is definitely a false flag. How do you know? And you know, yet again, when we have car bombs going out, uh, 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 uh you know, uh, outside of Moscow. Um, when you have drone attacks inside Syria, I mean inside 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 Russia as well. You no, know, the Ukrainians do have capabilities to do things. Um, I think one of the things that 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 the, again that a lot of the, the the folks got wrong is. When the Ukrainians do something, we wag their finger, say "Don't do it." So actually, people think that the Ukrainians are going to listen to that. <laughs> so, uh, and maybe they won't because guess what? It's their war to fight, and then we'll wag their finger at them again. Anyway, Mark, uh, it's
1: Friday. I'm sure you got a weekend to to get started on. Uh, but it's great to to chat with you, and you know, like I say, it's it's, it's our offline conversation online, which is always the most fun.
2: Welcome yeah. back. And, uh, and I do have to say this one thing. You see, you got a haircut, which, uh, which has not always been the case. So. Yeah, I know.
1: I, is, uh, I get more, I get more agita from your wife who sees me I know. on TV. It was, it was looking, uh, you
2: know, I woke yeah, up. Yeah, I even shaved, shaved when I
1: was in, in country. So go yeah. figure. Huh? Thanks so much. I remember once when I was like 12 years old, my older sister took me to the barber and she said, make him look <laughs> like Dan Quayle. So I think that made me had a <laughs> complete fear of like a short haircut. <laughs> Anyway, um, great to have you, Mark uh, Polymeropoulos, uh, MSNBC contributor, former CIA officer, friend of
0: the show. Uh, You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, and we will see you next week. You can listen to the full episode of this podcast by becoming a member. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code Mayflowers to become a member. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy code Mayflowers. Thank you very much.